Kings, and we are in chapter 21. We just did uh, Elijah destroying the prophets of Baal and running off to Arabia, and we did the bit worth raising the young man from the dead. And then chapters, uh, most of 20 and some of 19, talks about some of the history, and we're just going to skip over that because I want to stay with Elijah. So the next time we see Elijah is going to be at the end of 21, but I want to set it up with all of 21. So now I'm in 1 Kings 21. Now Daboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. So he looks out of his palace and he sees this vineyard that would be very convenient to plant potatoes in, and tries to buy it. Verse 3, But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Several things. You all know the law of return, where at the end of every 50 years, the land reverts to its original owners. So the land can't be sold. It can only be basically rented. And the sale price is a function of the number of crops that you can expect to get between the time you buy it and the year of return. So for the king to ask to buy Naboth's field is not out of line. He's not doing anything that couldn't be done. Naboth can sell it to him, either swapping for a better piece of land or taking money, knowing that in the year of Jubilee, he'll get it back, or his family will get it back if he's not alive. But Naboth doesn't want to do that, obviously, and so he says no. And in here, we get an insight into Ahab, because Ahab, when he's told no, goes into a sulk. And he goes up and lays down in bed and sulks and and becomes sullen and won't eat and just all sorts of ticked off because he doesn't have what he wants. So you sort of get the idea from this that Ahab is not a particularly strong character. And so now down to verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. You can see who wears the pants in that family. And her question, are you not the king of Israel, is sarcastic. Why are you, the king, upset that a mere peasant won't turn his field over to him? And you have ways of solving this problem. Given that you have the power and given that you are the king, this can be solved easily. Why are you off like a baby sulking instead of solving your problem? It's sort of the, the, the gist of the question. One other thing about the vineyard. For those of you who are into wine, certain vineyards do better with different kinds of wine. 
So you, you're in one region and it produces one kind of grapes really well, and you're in another region and it produces another kind of grapes really well. So the idea of, I'll give you a better vineyard, in addition to the fact that it's the vineyard that was passed down to him by his fathers, there also may be something about, you know, this grows really great white wine and I'm not into red wine. You know, I mean, it could be something like that also. It isn't necessarily just the patrimony. It may be other things involved there too. Verse 8. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. This is Hillary Clinton, and I am not being facetious. This is a woman who wants power, that's all she wants, she wants what she wants, and she's willing to kill people to get it. Now, what's going on here? So they're declaring a fast, and they're sitting around fasting. And what happens is Naboth is sitting wherever he's sitting. And what they do is they bring two ringers in and set them near him. And then the ringers say, gee, I just heard him curse God and curse the king. So the reason for having these two worthless men right next to him is so that they could potentially hear anything he said, but not necessarily anybody else. What you have then is two false witnesses that are planted there, and they say, we heard him curse God and curse the king, and of course on the uh, testimony of two witnesses, a thing is established. The other thing that's going on here, obviously, is the elders and leaders in the city are every bit as corrupt as Jezebel is. The other thing that's going on here, and for those of you who have lived in Longmont any length of time, you remember in the last year or so, you had a bunch of people that wanted to develop a mall. And Dillard's was in their way. Dillard's didn't want to sell. And Dillard's was interfering with this plan that they had for the mall, so they went and got Dillard's property condemned so that they could build a mall. In the Constitution, in our Constitution, Taking private property against the will of the owner is forbidden except for a public purpose. So, for example, if you want to build a road, you can condemn somebody's house that's in the way of the road. You have to pay them fair market value, but you can condemn the house and you can build the road through there. The idea there is, and I'm not sure I agree with this, but it's the Constitution. But the idea is that 99 people want a road through there, and you got one sorehead that's sitting there, and I, I ain't going to sell, so you don't have a road. That is it's not something that I am terribly comfortable with, but the Supreme Court decision oh, about 10, 15 years ago called Kelso changed the law. And what it now is is property may be condemned if the city thinks that they have got some other use for it. So what's happened here is Dillard's property is condemned and it's given to another private party to build a mall, in this case, which is a private facility. And the city is doing it because they think that the new mall is going to get them more tax revenue than Dillard's would. That is unconstitutional, except that the Supreme Court says it's okay. 
but it, it's a clear contravention of the Constitution. But the idea of government officials looking at somebody's property and coveting it goes clear back here to Jezebel. And the thing about governments is if they want something, they will typically feel find a way to get it. Except in this case, Jezebel is willing to kill to get the property. It seems amazing that a king can order public officials to lie to get what the king wants, and they do it. What that does is it shows you the nature and character of the government of Israel at that time. And the fact that this stuff was happening like that is one of the reasons they got sent into exile, because they were using government power to oppress people who couldn't resist them, essentially. If you read you know, the prophets who are writing at the time of the exile, like uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, what you find is every one of them upbraids the part of Israel that's going into exile for doing this kind of stuff. God puts up with a lot of idol worship, but what happens with idol worship is idols are different from Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what idols do is give you stuff for worship. It's a quid pro quo. If I worship you, I'm going to get rich. If I worship you, I'm going to get sex. If I worship you, I'm going to get this, that, or the other thing. So idols are gods in the image of their worshipers. So if the thing that you're interested in is wealth, you will rustle up an idol that you will worship to give you wealth. If you are one that worships sex, same thing. So idols tend to be made in the image of their worshipers. And what they do is they give a religious justification and a religious veneer of respectability to the thing that the worshiper wants to do. So if you have a deal where you want sex with men, women, or children, and you can get it all in the pagan temples. Every, everything you want, you could get in the pagan temple. You naturally would gravitate to a god that had that kind of a worship style, because that's what you were interested in. And my god is X. If you are interested in property or that kind of thing, you would gravitate to God Y, because I worship this god, and oh, by the way, this god says... It's okay to do whatever I want sexually or to do whatever I want materially. So it's a way of justifying the lusts of the human heart, whether those lusts be for, as I say, power, sex, money, whatever your particular lust happens to be, you will gravitate to the God that supports that. What that means is you've made God in your own image. And the justification then leads to excess. So it starts off as, gee, I'm kind of interested in this, but then you hook up with a god that basically says what you want is an object of worship, and the more you do it, the more worshipful you are, and so what happens is those idols snowball you into the corrupt societies that God finally says, I've had it up to here, you guys are out. It is the case that idol worship always leads to this kind of violence and oppression, which is one of the reasons God says don't do it. Because in the case of Jehovah, you are made in his image, 
not the other way around. So he is not corruptible. Now, his ministers may be corruptible, but God himself is not. And that's different from a pagan idol, which is a scam set up to pursue some human lust. And that's why you've got dozens of gods and dozens of temples, is because each one of them has a slightly different twist. And what you do is you go find the one you like. And that's what you worship. And what Jezebel worships is power. That's what she wants. And again, I'm not putting too fine a point on this. She's Hillary Clinton. So verse 11, And the men of his city, the elders and leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Notice how it's set up. Naboth gets seated in a prominent position where you can say to these two worthless guys, all right, the guy at the head table, that's the one you want. And these two worthless men, who one would assume are probably strangers, and one would assume don't have a recorded grudge against Naboth, go in and sit down, and then all of a sudden, ah, wait, you've blasphemed God and the king. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, sort of as a subtext here, what isn't known is whether Naboth has any heirs. just isn't mentioned here. I sort of suspect that if Naboth does have any heirs, his heirs have been intimidated into silence by the way Naboth has been treated. It's really obvious that somebody really wants this vineyard, and if we stand in the way, we're going to be the next one stoned. So all the way down now to verse 17. So now Elijah re-enters the picture. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, You have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. So God is not pleased. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, this is Elijah now, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, because you have made Israel to sin. Obviously, what is being said here goes beyond what God told him to say. Moses also freewheels and goes beyond the direct instructions of God. 
one of the things that appears to happen is when one of these prophets gets a charge from God and they see the situation, the prophet also becomes indignant and sort of takes a little bit of poetic license. I mean, this guy really knows how to deliver a curse. The deal with Israel is Israel has really a unique governing structure because at least at this point in the history, you have a king who nominally has absolute power. So, for example, he just sent a letter to the town council and said, uh, I want you to get, kill this guy Naboth, and they did. But the counterbalance to that is the prophet. And prophets routinely throughout the scriptures will grab kings by the stacking swivel and say, hey, old king, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. And they do. Now, as we see later on, kings don't have any problem roughing up prophets. So when Jezebel threatens Elijah, he beats feet out of town. If we were studying Jeremiah, one of the things that happens is king doesn't like Jeremiah's prophecy. Throws him in jail. You can stay in the jug until you change your prophecy. So the thing that a prophet says has power. Even when he goes beyond the express set of instructions that seems to be given to him by God. So Elijah, when he sees Ahab, who he isn't very fond of. I mean, they have quite a history going back. So he gets all indignant and he gets all poetic and he goes way beyond what God said. And oh, by the way, the stuff he says is going to stick. So you really don't want to tick off a prophet. I'm in verse 23 now. And if Jezebel the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of heaven shall eat. And notice she is going to die in Jezreel. Why Jezreel? That's where the vineyard is. The vineyard is in Jezreel because Naboth was a Jezreelite. 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. One thing about Jezebel. Jezebel, as I say, is obviously the one who wears the pants in the family. She controls her husband. Now, we saw earlier when he goes into a, a sulk because he doesn't get the piece of farmland he wants, he's not an especially strong guy. And she basically controls him. There's a couple of ways that she does that. One is with sex, and the other is with ridicule. Because remember, what, what did she say when he couldn't get that vineyard? What kind of a man are you that can't even get a vineyard away from a farmer? So there's ridicule, belittling him, and so forth. And those are ways that she controls him. So now down to verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted, lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. The way I interpret that is 
the kings of Israel, especially of Omri, Omri is the line of which Ahab is a member, have stored up so much nastiness that it's got to come out. But instead of dumping it on Ahab, since Ahab has repented, it sort of is going to be held back for a while, but it's still going to come out. It can't, that can't be stopped. But since Ahab has repented, it will not land specifically on him. That's what I think is being said. Now we're going to skip forward. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens with, again, battles and Ahab gets killed and Jehoshaphat reigns. I'm going to pick it up at 1 Kings 22 and 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped them and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So we sort of closed Ahab with his repentance. And God saying, okay, since you humbled yourself and repented, I'm going to delay what's going to happen to your house until after your death. Well, his son, who was the son of him and Jezebel, is Ahaziah. And Ahaziah is Jezebel's son. He grew up in a household that is dominated by Jezebel, and he is basically no better than she is. So now we're in 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Abaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. He's in an upper chamber. Don't know why, but he falls out the window. And gets taken in and he's laid up in bed having fallen out of the window. And so what he wants to do is find out, am I going to survive this? And so he sends to Baal to find out. So now verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baals above the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. God sees what's going on, tells Elijah, go intercept the messengers and give them a message. Verse 5. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? The idea here is, I sent you off on a journey of X number of days and you come back in two hours. The other place we see that in scripture is when Isaac sends Esau out to go deer hunting so that he can have a little bit of game. And then when Jacob comes in with two kids, he says, well, how'd you find a deer so fast? So it's, I mean, it's the same kind of a, of a reaction. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. 
he said to the he the king said to them what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things they answered him he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist and he the king said it is elijah the tishbite again it's sort of like uh, john the baptist was recognized by his garments verse 9 then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50 he went up to elijah who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. And this goes back to the comment I made earlier. When a king of Israel gets a prophecy that he doesn't like, one of the things that they will do is go grab the prophet and rough him up and see if we can get him to say something better. This goes with the idea that the prophet's words have power. So if I can get a hold of this rascal and I can make him say something different, that will change the outcome. Verse 10. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Elijah basically tells the king, No, I'm not going to come. Verse 11, Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, if I have a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. This is very much reminiscent of Moses facing down Korah. You know, Moses is standing in front of Korah and he says, You guys won't repent? Fine. If I'm God's man, let the earth open up and swallow you and your family's whole. And the earth opens up and swallows him and his family's whole. So again, the idea that somebody who is acting on God's behalf can go beyond God's direct instruction and expect to be backed up is very scriptural. Verse 13, again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of those fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men as with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The first two guys weren't very polite. I am going to be very polite. Verse 15 maybe. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Because you have sent messengers to acquire Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Uzziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So now we're in 2 Kings 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and said to him, 
do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. A couple of things. So they're starting off at Gilgal. It's down on the, by the Jordan River Valley. And he says, all right, I'm going up to Bethel. You stay here. And Elisha says, no way, and goes with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to start down in the Jordan Valley at Gilgal. We're going to go up to Bethel. Then from Bethel, we're going to go back down to Jericho. And then from Jericho, we're going to go. So you're doing this big loop that starts down at the Jordan River, goes up to the top of the Central Highlands, and then comes back down to the Jordan River. It's sort of like Elijah is trying to ditch this guy. Because at each step, he says, all right, you wait here. I'm going on to X, Y, or Z. And, And Elijah says, nope, I'm coming with you. Then we have the sons of the prophets that show up at these way stations and they all say, uh, you know, this is going to be your last day with your master. And he says, I know it, be quiet. Now, I don't know what be quiet is, is, I don't know what that part is for. It could be that he doesn't want them to say anything that is going to change the order of events. These are all prophets that we're dealing with. And so if they start running off at the mouth, things may get changed. And so one interpretation of this could be, okay, I know what the order of events is going to be here today. I'm going to follow this guy from here to there and back again. And at the end of the day, I'm going to have his mantle. And I don't want you saying anything to screw it up. That could be what's being said. So now we're all the way down to verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were in Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So again, the same vignette plays out. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets, who also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. I'm not sure what's going on here. One way to look at that is, something big is going to happen here. I want to see it, but I don't want to be too close. Given Elijah's history, being too close when he gets going, can be dangerous. Everybody knows that this is his last day. And they all want to see it, but they don't want to be too close when it happens. Verse 8. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Well, okay, so this is, I think, the third splitting of a body of water in Scripture. Moses did it, then Joshua did it, and now... Elijah does it. Verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. So again, obviously Elijah knows that he's about to leave. And he say, All right, you've been my servant. What do you want me to do for you before I go? And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. 
one of the things that happens is Elijah obviously here asks for the double portion. And as we go into Elisha, what we'll see is everything that Elijah does, did, Elisha does twice. So he'll raise two people from the dead, for example. He does, in fact, get a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I have no idea what the business is. If you see me go, you get it. If you don't see me go, you don't. I don't have any idea what that's all about. Verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Then he saw him no more. And again, I don't know what the chariots of Israel and its horsemen are. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And the idea here is I have a double portion. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he, struck, he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elijah went over. So he's sort of testing out, do I really have the power here? Just saw the water split, let me see if I can do the same thing. Verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho saw him, opposite said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. One of the things that is fairly obvious is today we tend to have a really high and elevated opinion of the prophets in the Bible. Their contemporaries did not have such an opinion of them. I think that a subtext here is, huh, did you just kill your master and stow the body somewhere so you could have his power? Don't know that that's what's being said here. I mean, the, the way it's described is, well, yeah, okay, you say he got taken up in a whirlwind and he's gone. Maybe God put him somewhere else. Let's go look. And I sort of get the impression that it's, it's suspicious but I may be very wrong. The way prophets are treated in the Bible is very different than the sort of lofty and ethereal view we have of prophets. They were rough guys. They were engaged in the rough and tumble of politics. And people didn't have any problem at all accusing them of chicanery. So uh, back to 16 and a half. This is the Son of the prophet speaking. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountains or into some valley. And he, Elisha, said, You shall not send. 17. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying in Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Again, it's sort of like, gee, my partner is missing. Oh no, don't look over there. It sort of has that feeling. What do you mean, don't look over there? Is that where you hid the corpse? 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. What was the first thing that Elijah did? He turned off the rain. Remember? The first time he shows up, he shows up and he says, No more rain. What Elijah does first is, again, something with water. In this case, he heals the water so that it is no longer, no longer bad. 23. He went up from there to Bethel. While he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him and saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So, snarky kids, ah, fine, you're going to be snarky to me, and, and you have two bears basically clobbered 42 of them. I don't know if any of them died. It doesn't say they were killed. It just said they were torn by the bears. So he seems to have also inherited a double portion of his master's curmudgeonliness. When you all like frozen prayer? <laughs> 